Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Today's sermon is by V. Awakening. It was preached at the annual camp meeting held at God's Bible School and College in 1977. He titles this sermon, Christian Perfection. I know you'll enjoy this great message. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 6, reading three verses from this chapter, beginning reading with verse 1. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning reading with verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctoring of Christ, let us go on unto perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. And thus reads three verses from Hebrews chapter 6. May we bow our head for a moment's prayer together. Blessed Lord, let divine light shine through clearly. Speak anew to our hearts as a congregation and prepare us not only for heaven, but prepare us to live right while we still live in this world. Meet needs, whatever spiritual needs that may prevail out across this congregation. Deal with every one of us in the light of eternity and in the light of our needs. Help both preacher and people in these few minutes before us this morning, and the glory will be thine. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse number one of this scripture passage that we've read, we're introduced to the subject of perfection. Now, the subject of perfection is a very interesting subject. One of my friends who worked at a place, and every time the subject of perfection was mentioned, this one man always said, none are perfect. None of us are perfect every time. So one day my friend said to him, said, Sir, if you were half as afraid of sin as you are perfection, you'd be a much better man. 
It amazes me how afraid of perfection some people are. And yet, the Bible challenges us here, counsels us to go on on to perfection. Wherever the subject of perfection is mentioned, people are always ready to counsel with you and advise you about it. And uh, some will tell you that there is no such thing as perfection. They would even tell you that the Apostle Paul did not profess perfection. And they're pretty smart. They'll take you right in their Bible and read it to you. Right out of the book of Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 12, where Paul says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after. And they'd tell you that Paul didn't profess perfection. And as great as he was, if he didn't profess it, there'd be no need for us as human beings to talk about perfection. And they read it to you right out of the Bible that he did not. He said he followed after, but he did not profess perfection. Then there are others who will talk to you about the matter of perfection. And they will tell you that there is such a thing as perfection. And they will tell you that the Apostle Paul professed perfection and they've been reading their Bible. They know how to read their Bible. And they'll take you right to the book of Philippians, same chapter I just read from, chapter 3. And they'll read to you from verse 15 and they'll say, let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. They'll tell you the Apostle Paul professed perfection. And of course he did. Now I would say Paul did not profess perfection. Now I say he does and did profess perfection. Now either Paul did or he did not profess perfection. And we said he didn't and then we say he does. Now how do you find the solution to the dilemma? The solution to the matter is in the type of perfection that's professed. There are some kinds of perfection that Paul did not profess. There are some kinds of perfection that he did profess. There are some kinds of perfection that I do not profess. There are some kind of perfection that I do profess. Now, of course, there are different kinds of perfection. When you talk about perfection, you may have to identify the kind you're talking about before you're able to clearly identify yourself. In the first place, Paul did not profess absolute perfection. I do not profess absolute perfection. And I kind of hope that you don't profess absolute perfection. If you professed absolute perfection, you know what I'd say? Probably wouldn't say anything. I'd just do a little thinking. I'd say, well, the brother doesn't understand what he's talking about. The sister just doesn't understand what they're talking about. The facts of the case is absolute perfection is not provided for human beings. Only God has absolute perfection. Only God. I do not profess it. God couldn't make a mistake. I make a lot of mistakes. It hasn't been so long until I was at a place and there was a brother in the church who wanted to ride with me. I was staying near where he lived and he wanted to ride the next morning with me to church. 
Of course, I'm glad to have people to ride with me to church. And I told him I'd pick him up and take him to church as I went. And the next morning I got to church and I looked up in a little while and here come my Christian brother walking in. I felt very bad about it, but I'd forgotten about him. That's too bad. It's just too bad that we have so many failures. But if I had had absolute perfection, you see, that wouldn't have happened. I wish I could go to an altar and find absolute perfection. Now, I could go to the altar and seek it, but some things you can't get. They're just not provided for us. There are some things that are provided. Paul didn't have absolute perfection. He did not have angelic perfection. Wouldn't it be wonderful if somehow God in his great plan of redemption had provided angelic perfection for us? Now, I do not know for sure that I can tell you what angelic perfection is. One man expresses opinion of what angelic perfection would be. For he said, if two angels were sent to this world, one of them to rule an empire, the other to sweep the railroad crossings, neither angel would have any choice as to which job he did. For they get their glory not from what they do, but from whom they serve. Now I would be quick to tell you that I do not have angelic perfection. It would be wonderful if I did. And I, I just know, I just know, it would be a lot easier for my wife if I had angelic perfection. And since she's here, if she weren't here, I'd be careful what I said, but since she is present, I would tell this congregation, if she had angelic perfection, it'd be a lot easier for me at times. But neither of us have angelic perfection. And there isn't any need to go to the altar to seek it. I'd like to have it. There's something about angelic perfection that's very beautiful for me. Then I would like to have it and I could cry about it. I could go to an altar and I could cry about angelic perfection. But God never provided angelic perfection for us. Now there is a kind of perfection that God has provided for us human beings. And we call it in theology Christian perfection. Now this is provided for men and women and boys and girls just like us. People that, have, that are human and people that have needs, he has provided a type of perfection for us. Now in this realm of perfection, there are other terms that are basically synonymous with this. If you wanted to split a theological hair, you might identify some different terms but sometimes we call synonymous terms that mean the same thing as perfection and we talk about sanctification. Clear cut, entire, second definite work of grace, sanctification as being synonymous with the term Christian perfection. Now while there are different kinds of perfection, there are also different kinds of sanctification. Number one in theology, we talk about judicial sanctification. That is, God judges you sanctified. I would believe that when a person is first converted, God judges you sanctified. 
For the Bible says without holiness or without sanctification or without Christian perfection, no man can see God. And I believe every word of it. But if you were to get converted today in this camp meeting and after the morning service you had a heart attack or you died, I believe you'd make it to heaven. But you didn't get sanctified. At least not like we talk about it at times. But you just had been wonderfully converted. I believe you would make it to heaven. But the Bible says you can't make it to heaven unless you have holiness or sanctification. And I believe it thoroughly. No problem involved. So I believe that immediately when you are converted, that God counts you sanctified. But as you walk in the light, from the moment you are converted, you get converted by walking in the light, and you'll keep saved by walking in the light. And God, in his wonderful plan, has arranged it so that he lets new light dawn upon you all along the way. Sometime it's in camp meeting. And you wouldn't have to always be in camp meeting to get new light. Some of us got light before we ever knew there were camp meetings that existed. And God turns new light on your pathway. And as long as you're walking in all the light God gives you, he counts you sanctified. You haven't rebelled against any light. You haven't resisted light. You haven't fought against it. You've been perfectly cooperative and in harmony with all the will of God as you could understand it. But as you walk with the Lord somewhere along the way, sooner or later, some people's lives it's sooner, some it's a little later. I don't understand all of the workings of the blessed Holy Ghost in this manner of giving light. But uh, somewhere along the way, even if you didn't have a hole in this camp meeting to attend, if you didn't have a hole in this preacher, if you didn't have a hole in this church to go to, if you're saved and walking in all the light God gives you, somewhere along the way, there comes into your life that feeling, that light, that understanding, that regeneration alone did not fully meet all the need of your heart. That somehow there's just something that's, that's not right up to par, that's just the way it ought to be. Maybe you felt an uprising. Maybe you felt some resentments. I do not know what the occasions may have been. In my particular case, I did not know my privilege, but Jesus had saved me. And before I was converted, my brother just older than I, occasionally he and I would have a little spat. And of course, I thought he was greatly to blame for the problem that would arise occasionally. But after Jesus saved me, we never had any more spats. And I've been, I've been pretty well persuaded that the blame must have been mine why we had him in the first place. I thought maybe he was. But one day, down in front of the old barn out on the farm, something went wrong between us, and a problem arose. And this was the first time since conversion, and it had been about a year since I was converted, and this is the first time that I had felt an uprising in my heart to be conscious of. I look back, 
I date conviction for holiness back to that point. I didn't know what holiness was. I didn't know there was a second work of grace. I didn't know there's such a thing as Christian perfection. I did not know there was such a thing as entire sanctification. And thus I propose to you that as you walk in the light and God lets light break through on you and you come right up to the place as I did where you felt there was a need. I said to two preachers one day, there's something wrong with my experience and I know I haven't backslidden and I knew I hadn't. I was praying every day. I was reading my Bible every day. I was attending the prayer meetings. I was being faithful the best I knew how in serving the Lord. And I recognized there was a need. I didn't know what to call it. One of the preachers said, Bud, you just pray and God will help you to know what it, what it is you need. I did pray. God did help me to know what I needed and as, I, as you walk in the light after conversion, you come right up to the place that you understand that there is a need. You may not have known what to call it. Maybe you do in your case, for you've had enough theological training and religious emphasis and attending maybe holiness churches or camp meetings that you understand the need of your heart. I did not but whether you understood it or whether you didn't, the Holy Ghost turns light and you come right up to that place where you realize there's a need. And if you respond, you become a seeker for the supply of that need. You wouldn't have to have a holiness preacher to seek second blessing holiness. You wouldn't have to go to a holiness camp meeting to become a seeker for second blessing holiness. All in the world you need to do is get saved and then walk in the light. And as you walk in the light, you come right up to that place where you become a seeker. Either you have to become a seeker or else you walk against light. For instance, let me illustrate. Here's a person that's been wonderfully converted. He's been walking in the light. He's, he's been faithful. He's been victorious. He's been joyful. And he's been, he's been victorious right up to the moment. But now... He's come to the place where new light has broken in. And he begins to consider the matter of getting sanctified. He realizes there's another need. It may be he says, well, my people have not gone this way. And I, I just don't believe that I'm going to go this way of what is called holiness or sanctification. My pastor doesn't preach it. My church doesn't believe in it. My family doesn't believe in it. And he comes right up to the light. He recognizes not only his responsibility, he recognizes his privilege, but when he comes face to face with the issue, instead of becoming a seeker for experience of entire sanctification, he turns around. He says, I just don't believe I'll go the way of holiness. And he makes a turn, and when he does, his back is to the light. God has given him light. Now, you don't get to heaven with your back to the light, friends. If you're going to make it to heaven, you have to walk in the light God gives you. There's no salvation compatible with being back of light. And when your back's to the light, you're not, you're not making your journey toward heaven. So he becomes a backslater. Another person came, comes right up to the light of holiness. God has unusual ways of turning light on. 
and letting you see your need and letting you see that there is a supply to that need. And this person that now I'm talking about, he comes right up to the light where the only logical thing would be would be to seek this experience and get this experience of full salvation. And when he comes right up to that place, maybe he's Sunday school superintendent, may even be pastor, maybe song leader, maybe a man of prominence or woman of prominence in the church. And instead of really humbling themselves and becoming a seeker for entire sanctification, this person says, well, I'm a getting along fine. I'm leading. I'm doing certain things in the church, and I'm a getting along quite well. And instead of becoming a seeker, he steps over the light. He doesn't bow to seek second blessing holiness. And when he steps over the light, he's just going to go right on superintending, right on pastoring, right on carrying the responsibilities of the church. And when he does, his back's to the light. You may be a prominent in the church, but if your back's to the light, I would tell you now, you'll never make it to heaven with your back to the light. After all, it's not really what we profess that's valuable anyhow. The thing that's valuable, and I think the final question when I get to the end of the journey will not be, did I profess two works of grace? Oh, no, I don't think that'll be the question. I think the question will be, did I walk in the light as God gave me the light? Did I do what God told me to do? What the light turned upon my path? And if a person comes to this point and walks in the light, he becomes a seeker, clear-cut, specific, and definite for a sanctified experience. And if he becomes a seeker for this experience, then we call this experimental, experimental sanctification. There comes that point of time that God no longer counts you sanctified because he's shined the light on your pathway. He's told you what you need to do and either you have to rebel, reject, or else walk in the light. You have to do one of the two and God no longer counts you sanctified. And beyond that point, if you have resisted light, if you have rejected light, God no longer counts you sanctified and thus you are responsible for your actions. Now, when it comes to this matter of experimental sanctification, it's a, it's a blessed experience, when, a blessed time when you come to that moment when God the Holy Ghost just breaks through upon you with divine light, you walk in the light and you get sanctified. Well, friends, I tell you what I tell people. I tell people the only way you can keep from getting sanctified is to reject light and back down on light. If you'll walk in the light, there isn't any question you'll get sanctified. This is the way the Holy Ghost directs. It's the way he's always directed. It's the way he's directing today. But experimental sanctification is a wonderful, definite, positive, instantaneous experience. Clear cut, no questions about it. It's a glorious, positive, wonderful experience. But there's another kind of sanctification. We call it practical sanctification. Now in this realm of practical sanctification, this is not something you can get at an altar. I think think there are times maybe when we do not put a proper balance of emphasis 
on realms of divine truth. Now, it may be at times the emphasis we give to the experience of sanctification kind of unbalances us a little bit. And we get the idea that if you just get sanctified, you have found all the solutions to your problems. You have really finally arrived. You have obtained a wonderful, glorious, positive, sanctified experience, the mighty incoming of the Holy Ghost, and we kind of feel that we've arrived when we get to that place. Well, I would tell you, friends, it is a wonderful experience. It's a glorious experience, and it's a blessed, wonderful experience to be sanctified but you haven't really arrived. You've just got rid of the nature of inbred sin so your Christian life can develop better than it's been developing. The garden always grows better than vegetables do when you get the weeds out. And when you get the nature of inbred sin out of your heart, my, thank God, you, you've just gotten to the place where you can develop better, grow better, and have more victory and, and a, better, a better testimony and a better influence and a more solid life for the Lord than you've ever had before. So here is the realm of practical sanctification. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you're developing in the things of the Lord. But you say, do I have to get sanctified? No, you don't have to get sanctified. You are a free moral agent. You don't have to do anything that you don't want to do. Now, if you get sanctified or if you do not get sanctified, there are certain things that will happen as a natural consequence of whether you walk in the light or whether you do not walk in the light. If you do not walk in the light and get sanctified, either one or two things will happen. Either you'll become a backslider or else you'll become an apostate. Now, apostate may go right on professing. He may go right on talking about spiritual things. He may go right on preaching. He may go right on superintending the Sunday school. He may go right on teaching. He may go right on doing the job he's been doing. But there's been a slippage. He no longer has times of waiting before God and his heart warmed and thrilled and challenged. There's no more times of fasting. There's no more times of really going down before God and finding deeper depths and higher heights and broader breaths. But he's the, he is now moving into the realm of a being an apostate. He may still, on principle, go ahead and make his profession, but that's about it. Now, if you, if you don't want to get sanctified, you wouldn't have to, but if you're walking in God's light, I believe there's a thrill in your heart to think about getting rid of that old nature of inbred sin. Oh, thank God the remedy's provided. You can get rid of that old nature that's bothering you and holding you down. You can get rid of that old nature. Oh, thank God for the way of practical sanctification. Quite frequently, I meet some people, basically young people, who get a bit discouraged. They've been to the altar twice, maybe more, they have professed that they were sanctified and they're a bit discouraged. They look at some of the saints that have been in the way for 50 years, the steadiness of those lives and the, the symmetry of the lives that have been serving the Lord through the years and 
the stableness of those lives and the consistency of living and testimony. And sometimes younger people get a little discouraged because they aren't able to live like some of the old saints. Now, I'm not going to tell you that the day you get sanctified, you may be clear, you may be positive in your experience, but I'm not going to tell you the day you get sanctified, you're going to be able to live as mature and solid and as consistent as some of those that you know who've been walking in this way for 50 years. I some time ago found out how long it'll take you after you get the experience of holiness to live like you've had the blessing for 50 years. It'll take 49 years and 11 months and 30 days. That's how long it'll take you to live like you've had the blessing for 50 years. After all, there is an area of development and progress and steadiness and solidity to our Christian life that we develop after we get sanctified. But you can be clear, you can be positive, the work's done. There may be some areas of problems and difficulty, but you're working on them. You're walking in new life. As God gives you new life, you're doing the best you can. Hallelujah. For this way of holiness. After all, friends, holiness is the state of man's spiritual nature in this life after inborn depravity is moved, is removed. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying, let us go on unto perfection. Now when it comes to this matter of Christian perfection or holiness or entire sanctification, I tell you, it's a, it's a wonderful biblical doctrine. I would like for our holiness people to know that you're not participating in an unworthy doctrine when you go this way of holiness. If this book, the old Bible, teaches anything, I believe without any question it teaches clear-cut, second blessing, holiness. Two definite works of grace. I believe the book is clear. And the total matter on this business of holiness. It's a beautiful doctrine. I feel like one man, a pastor who was not specifically at that time a second blessing holiness man, had called an evangelist to help him who was a second blessing holiness preacher. One morning the evangelist was preaching. The revival was, had been going a few days and God was moving and light was shining through. And right in the middle of the evangelist's time of ministry, the sermon, the pastor stood up and said, Brother, I'd like to ask you a question. The evangelist said, You may state your question. The pastor said, If I understand what you're preaching properly, you're preaching what is called in Methodism entire sanctification or a second work of grace. And the evangelist said, Evidently, you are understanding correctly. And then the pastor said, I've got another question. The evangelist said, state your question. The pastor said, you maintain that this experience is now for us, is for us now. And the evangelist said, I maintain both doctrinally and experientially that this experience is available for you now. And the pastor said, if that's true, then close your sermon, give the altar call, he said, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. 
You know, I feel like that about second blessing holiness. There isn't anything illogical about this. There isn't anything irrational about this. This is the most logical, the most intelligent, the most, the most, the greatest thing in the universe to have clear cut second blessing holiness. It's the best thing this side of heaven God's provided for his children. I'm amazed that every professor of religion doesn't want this. Mr. Wesley said, the only way you could get the dogs to worry this was to put a bear skin on it, and I believe that's true. It's a beautiful doctrine. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's a beautiful doctrine. But if it were only a doctrine... Then you just have to read about it in the Bible and say, oh, don't you wish that would be possible for us to have such a thing as that. Look at that. Oh, this is the will of God. Even your sanctification. Oh, how I wish that was available. By a follow peace with all men in holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You say, don't you wish that was possible for us to have if it were a doctrine and a doctrine only? You just have to read about it and say, isn't that beautiful? But it's more than a doctrine. It is a definite, positive, instantaneous experience available even today for you. God the Father wills you this. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. Jesus suffered without the gate that it could sanctify the people with his own blood. And the blessed Holy Ghost is here to work it the moment you meet the conditions. After all, it concerns the whole Godhead about you being sanctified. And it's not only a doctrine. It is a doctrine, but it's not only a doctrine. It's an experience. Thank God for the experience. Now, if it were only an experience, you'd have to testify and say, Oh, thank God. I remember 20 years ago or 30 years ago. In my particular case, it happened to be 35 years ago here at the tabernacle, this altar here where God sanctified me. But if it were just a matter of an experience, then I'd have to look back and say, well, thank God, 35 years ago, I found a wonderful, glorious experience. And I just have to talk about how wonderful that experience was. It is an experience, but it's more than experience. It's a life to be lived. And I can tell you now, 35 years later, it's better today than it was then. The sweetness, the beauty, the blessedness of this is the greatest thing in the whole universe. It's a life to be lived day by day, week after week, month after month, year after year. It becomes more blessed with the passings of the time. I used to hear some of the old saints testify and say, you know, it gets better all the time. And I kind of wondered how that could be. I thought it was about all I could take care of then. But I found as the years go by, God gives you a new enlargement and it just keeps getting better and better and better. Now, I would confess to you, it does bother me a little when I hear people just telling about the experience that they once found way back there somewhere. But they never, they never seem to relate it to the facts of today. They just keep on talking about it. it was so wonderful back there when God sanctified me, when he baptized me with the Holy Ghost. It was so wonderful. But things happen over periods of time and I have fears that some people may, have, may not 
have maintained this as they go along. But I believe it can be better today than it's ever been at any time in all of your past. It is in my own experience. Some things you can't get at an altar. You can't get practical sanctification at an altar. The only way in the world you can get practical sanctification is through the knocks and the scuffs and persecutions and laughs and everything that happens to you that God allows to come your way and you keep steady and you keep sweet and you keep your eye on the goal and your life becomes more mellow, your life becomes more balanced, your life becomes more consistent with the passing of time. Blessed, blessed life of entire sanctification. Somebody says, but I don't know whether I'm sanctified or not. You say, I've been to the altar several times and I'm just not clear like I wish I were. You say, can you tell me about whether I've got the nature of inbred sin yet in me or not? I'm not sure that I can. I don't know that I could tell you whether the nature of inbred sin is yet in your heart or not. Simply because of this reason. The nature of inbred sin does not develop in everybody the same way. Now, if it developed in everybody the same way, we could stereotype it and say, this is carnality, this is carnality, and that's carnality. Now, there's some things you can, but I'm talking about the nature of inbred sin does not develop in everybody the same way. The way to tell whether you're sanctified or not is not simply is not just simply to say, well, I got rid of my television and I, I've stopped going to the movies and I've stopped going to the places of amusement. No, maybe that isn't the way. It just may be that you never did have much of a love for TV. And there are some people that don't. Some people just don't care about it. Some people just don't care about the ball games. The nature of inbred sin didn't develop in them the same way. I discover up and down the country the thing that happens, it really doesn't matter what you tackle, which is an evidence basically of the nature of inbred sin, and you can talk about worldly amusements. And there'll be one crowd that'll shout you through. I mean, they, they stick with you. But then you change your course a little and begin to talk about pride of heart. And they get quiet, and another group picks you up. And they shout you through. And then maybe you talk about the love of the world. You talk about something else. There's always usually a group that shouts you through and the bunch who's shouting you through thinks the others are carnal because maybe they got quiet while you're talking about another land. Now the way to tell whether you're sanctified or not is not do you love, do you have pride of heart and love of the world and gossip and backbiting and hatred and unforgiveness and, and, and you could just go on and name the whole spectrum. The way to tell you whether you're sanctified or not is not simply if you have a, an absence of love of a lot of these things, no. But what about that one sore spot in your heart? And the thing that the nature of inbred sin developed under that sore spot in your life. When the preacher begins to talk about it, you just, up till that time, you thought he was doing pretty good. But when he hits your sore spot, your pet sin. Now you see, the nature of inbred sin doesn't develop in everybody the same way. And while it develops in different people in different ways, it's a difficult matter to kind of throw out a blanket coverage and say, well now, this is, the carnal, this is evidence of the carnal nature. Let me make an effort or two to try to a little clearer identify what I'm talking about. 
notice an evidence, let me mention an evidence or so of the carnal nature. Now, the carnal nature, if it's in your heart, based many times at least, if, at least if this is the way it's developed in you, it lusts to make a big religious show. Now, there's some people, let me make the case clear, some people that just inbred sin developed in them different than it did in your wife or your husband or, or anybody else maybe in the church, but basically uh, that thing inside, it just could be the way inbred sin developed in you was a love for making a religious show. When you were getting elected to official position, a teacher or whatever, you kind of felt elated. That just something kind of wonderful and grand, you know, you're being put in the lead. And you just kind of like to make a religious show. You kind of can strut, you know, whenever things are going good and people kind of smiling at you and people voting you in and they seem to appreciate you and you just kind of take a degree of satisfaction and delight in this and and as long as you're in the lead and as long as you're really, really kind of in the limelight, why, brother, it just seems like you're wonderful. It just seems like you're a real saint of God. But the day comes, and it usually comes to most of us somewhere along the way, when they didn't vote you in. And when they weren't patting you on the back, as it were. And when it seems as if, instead of uh, bragging on you there, they're kind of looking at you with a bit of reservation as if something's not just right. Now, I tell you, friends, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing that when things aren't going to your favors like you thought they ought to, it's wonderful to have enough of God and enough old-time religion and second-blessing holiness that you can keep sweet and you don't become critical of others, and you don't become sour, and you don't become censorious, and you don't become hard to get along with. But I, I'm going to tell you now, there's a lot of people professing two works of grace that don't have this much religion. I think most of you know it. No use of us talking too plainly here, but I sure want to talk plain enough that you understand what I'm talking about. After all, everybody serves on boards. Don't keep sweet. I think you've understood that. And everybody who may teach a Sunday school class when they don't get elected, they become a bit censorious and sour toward the person that was elected to their class. After all, you taught it 20 years. And you had a right to keep teaching. You had built the class up. When you took it, they only had three, and now they got four. And you thought truly they had better judgment than to put the other person in. But they didn't. And you began to let that thing fester. And it ended up, you out of sorts. Now, if that second blessing holiness, I'm wrong somewhere along the line. Something's, something's not right. But I, I say it's hard to identify the carnal nature. About the time you think you got it identified, somebody comes along and says, well, I never did want to be elected in the first place. And it's just perfectly all right for them to put in who they want to. Perfectly all right. And they never have a resentment seemingly. They didn't profess too much religion, but they didn't have any resentments when somebody else was put in in their place. But 
When that old nature of inbred sin, when it lacks to be in the lead, when it lacks to carry the show, when it lacks to be in the limelight, and then when things don't go to your liking, you lazily do nothing. I mean, you lazily do nothing and just kind of sit out and drag your feet. I, it seems to me, I tell some people occasionally, if we can't get enough religion to help us to act right, we ought to at least grow up and act like adults. But I, I'm rather of the opinion you can get enough religion, thank God, when you get rid of the old nature of inbred sin, you can keep sweet, you can keep a shouting, thank God, when you don't have your way as much as you shouted when you did have your way. Well, you say, I never was like that, so I missed your case. You never did like to show off, so that's all right. Let me try it again, see if I can help you. Now, the old nature of inbred sin, the way it develops in some people, that it gets jealous when somebody else enjoys or gains greater victories than you gain. Maybe somebody else's Sunday school class doubled and you were working hard trying to get yours going and it just seemed you couldn't. And when the other classes doubled and you weren't able to double yours, you got to feeling bad that the other teachers got a bit jealous. Maybe they are doing things a little better than you are. Maybe somebody outsings you or can outplay you at the, at the musical instruments. And you get jealous when others enjoy better victories or greater victories than you do. What reason did you have to get jealous? None. Take Cain and Abel, for instance. Why did Cain get jealous about Abel? No reason. Only the fact Abel enjoyed. I, I think perhaps what the scriptures refer to there when Abel brought his offering, and of course Cain brought his offering too. I think when Abel brought his offering, God had respect. What I think he meant by that is he got blessed. I wouldn't be surprised what he said. Hallelujah. Praise God. Glory to God. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Wonderful. And Cain sat over on the other side and said, Abel, what in the world are you shouting about? I don't feel a thing. Not a thing. Nothing to shout about. And he got jealous of his brother because his brother was getting blessed and he couldn't. God wouldn't bless him. Well, you likely find there's a reason why you're not getting blessed. When you say you miss me on that shot about getting jealous, you said, I, I, never, I never was like that. Well, let me make at least one more try here before quitting. When the old nature of inbred sin can't have its way, it'll climb the myth tree. Now, one American missionary was telling a group of natives of another country about this myth tree business and the native went out the next day and was telling the folk about it, what the American missionary said. And he, the native said, the American missionary said that in America, there's a very unusual kind of a tree. And said they call it the myth tree. And he said, nearly every family has one in the front yard. And when the husband comes in and things are not to his liking, he just goes out and climbs up in the tree and sits there till his wife comes out and apologizes to him. Now you see, the only thing the native didn't understand, he didn't understand proverbial language. We understand what we, we can use proverbs and you understand it, but the native didn't. He thought it was a real dream. Now the thing that's a little peculiar about it 
it's nearly too true to be laughable. I wonder what, how you're getting along about your myth three experience. Now he says here, let's go on unto perfection. Let's go on unto perfection. If you've been bothered with a myth three experience, then do something about it. Whatever may be the development of the nature of inbred sin in your life, bring it to Calvary. One man had been to the altar numbers of times and he couldn't seem to get a satisfactory experience. There was another man in the church that seemed to be so blessed and so happy in the Lord and so satisfied in a holiness experience. And the brother that was a seeker for this, he went over to his sanctified friend one day and said, Brother, you seem to have such a blessed experience I wish you would take me to the place where you got sanctified and let me pray and see if I can get sanctified and have such a blessed, happy, satisfactory experience like you have. The sanctified brother was a very wise man and he said to his friend, I'll be glad to take you. Make yourself comfortable a while while I finish the chores. They got in the old buggy and they started. The seeking brother said to his sanctified friend, how far is it? where you got sanctified well the sanctified brother says it's a good little ways but we'll we'll get there after a while and kept driving after a little bit the seeking brother again said to his sanctified friend just how just how far is it brother to where you got sanctified well he says it's it's not as far as it was a while ago we're making a little progress and kept driving and after a while the seeking brother said to his friend said brother so tell me, I said, how much do we like being there? Well, he said, we don't like too far now, so we're getting pretty near. And after a while, the seeking brother said to his sanctified brother, said, would you mind stopping and let's just get out and pray? He said, I'm going as far as I can go without getting sanctified. And the sanctified brother said, that's exactly the spot where I got through when I couldn't go any farther. That's where I got in. And that's where you're going to get in. When you get to the place where you can't go any farther, you wouldn't have to be begged. You wouldn't have to be pulled. You wouldn't have to be teased to get to pray. You're a candidate for it. And regardless what others do, you settle it. You're going to walk in the light and get the blessing. Hallelujah. Shall we stand, please? I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.